Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, page 933 here. I know this is an understatement, but I'm getting really tired of death. Um, just, just, just being honest, this, this past week, on Tuesday, one of those last warm days, I took a, took a motorcycle ride uh, in the evening and ended up at a, at a park in, in Mequon and uh, happened to, to come across a lady that Priscilla and I have known from the neighborhood for quite some time, a Christian lady, and I knew that her husband had uh, passed in recent months and I hadn't seen her since, and so we chatted a bit. And as I was leaving the park, there was, it was already dark, really, and the, there was like a wave of cars coming into the park. And I, so I asked somebody, well, what's going on? And, well, it's, it, it's a vigil for the uh, Israeli victims. And uh, uh, some high school students and a rabbi, and uh, I joined into that group for a little while. Thursday morning, I awoke to a text that, uh, that a couple that uh, we've known here at Open Door like 30-some years ago, they were in missionary training, but uh, they were involved in the church here. And uh, this couple and another younger missionary were, were killed in a tragic car accident in Kenya. And, and it just there's another report. There's another somebody who has been lost, and we, we become weary. Uh, too many of you have lost someone really close, and it really hurts for a really long time. And you, you bear that brutal weight of grief. And all of us are touched by it. Just some human thoughts. But you know, every week, we come together here to open this book. Because it's different than every other book. Because this, this book contains the truth of the Word of God. And I trust that you open it every day. Because we so desperately need the truth as we, as we struggle in, in, in the effects of sin in this world because this book is where we find hope. And I don't mean wishful hope. This is about confident truth about the real world and the way it really is according to God. Last week we were looking at verses 1 through 11 and it's called the gospel and that's good news. But what is the good news based on? The good news is based on the fact that Jesus Christ, God's only son, came to earth, lived here, died the death to pay for our sins, and then he what? He rose again. And so the good news is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Paul is launching really this rest of this chapter 15 in which he's going to talk about the resurrection. And he launches it by addressing some false views of resurrection that evidently, evidently some had in, in Corinth. And I believe there's a lot of people that have a false view of, of heaven and resurrection and, and what, it's, what it's really like. And so he addresses these problems, and, and it's strange to think that these questions came up in a church setting, but they did. Verses, let's read 12 through 14. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Uh, a series of dominoes falls if Christ is not literally raised from the dead. Now, as we wonder, how in the world could some 
Could Christians think this? Could some in the church actually think this? I believe what has been, what was believed in error was that they did not understand that the resurrection was a literal, bodily, physical, alive human being. You see, in ancient Greece, where the Corinth is, they were saved out of a religion that believed in this, this pantheon of gods. They believed some, some of them, there were, there were stories of how some of the gods died and then the gods were resurrected. Well, of course, you, you know, we know those aren't real people, so those are just ideas, right? But the Greeks had taken it one step further because they actually believed that some of their human war heroes were so great that they had achieved some kind of immortality. Immortality. Spiritually resurrected. Of course, you can't prove or disprove that either, because if resurrection is just a spiritual immortality, who knows? And it seems that some in the church were still being influenced by the, the pagan ideas to which they had come to, to Christ. And they just couldn't imagine that somehow Jesus really, I mean, really, physically was alive. That's why Paul has made his point in verses 4 through 8. No, Jesus is alive and he appeared. I mean, this is a physical, literal, bodily resurrection. Now you have to cut him a little bit of slack. The book of 1 Corinthians is written, we've said, probably in A.D. 55. And so they get this letter from Paul. They, don't have an, they just have the Old Testament, not a New Testament. They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John where we read over and over, Jesus died, he rose again, he rose again, he rose again. All these appearances, right? Some of those books are being written at the time, but they, they won't have been uh, accumulated and distributed to Corinth. And, and the book of Acts was not even written yet at this point. And so they didn't have what we have. So that's why they had to trust the apostolic authority of Paul when he had just written to them, no, guys, really, he died, he rose, and he appeared to Peter, the 12, the 500, to James, and he re- this is real, this is physical. So for, for us, this is kind of review, but for them, this was news. And so we can kind of understand how they would doubt that there is a literal physical resurrection someday, even for Jesus. And so yet Paul has to refute it. So how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Because our entire eternity, the gospel, the good news depends on Jesus literally dying, literally rising. And he said, I just want to tell you some of the ramifications. If Jesus did not literally bodily rise, here are some of the ramifications. And so he begins a list of those things. I'll bet that if you asked some of your most religious friends, neighbors, family members maybe, their view of heaven, they don't believe in a real physical resurrection either. It's, it's like, you know, this existence where we are, heaven is, is angelic, uh, invisible, maybe clouds, we're, we're peaceful, we're at rest. They don't believe in a physical, literal resurrection, but the Bible teaches a literal, physical resurrection like Christ. And so Paul tells his Corinthian friends, you cannot 
merge your, your old pagan ideas of immortality, spiritual resurrection, because no, this is real, this is physical, because if there is no resurrection like that, then Jesus did not rise. Everything then falls. Do you come to Scripture with a blank slate? Or do you sometimes not even realize that you, you, you were raised thinking this, or you come from this background. We all come from different backgrounds. Do we come to Scripture with a sense of, God, just show me what is true, and I'll discard anything that doesn't fit. Because if we don't do that, if we, core, we, if, if we allow our, our culture to, to inform our biblical knowledge, then one by one, it's like pulling wooden blocks from a Jenga tower, and it's all going to fall. Because if there's no resurrection, Christ is not raised, and in fact, our preaching is wasted, and what you believe is a myth. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verses 1 to 5 about the good news just dissolves, like one of those icons when you delete it, boom, it's gone. Just forget it. I wasted my breath preaching what you believe in is a myth. Last week we illustrated um, uh, that, that to put your faith in Christ means to completely trust in Him and not yourself, just like you get on an airplane and you completely trust in the airplane. And I used the illustration that coming back from Phoenix to, to Milwaukee uh, last week on the plane. Uh, so to believe in resurrection is only kind of a spiritual, angelic kind of a thing. It would be like if I was in Phoenix and I dreamt I got on an airplane to Milwaukee. <laughs> Or I imagined I got on an airplane to Milwaukee. And you can dream and imagine all you want to, but you're still in Phoenix until you physically, literally get in the plane and it carries you there. And that is the promise of a physical, literal reality. That's who we will, that's what we will experience because of our faith in Christ. No one's going to be in heaven if resurrection is not bodily. We're not a ghost on a cloud with a harp or whatever. There's more, verse 15 and 16. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So, Corinthian friends, you can't believe a word we say if Jesus did not rise. Because if you can't trust us on the main thing, how could you trust us on anything else? Kind of like if we don't trust the Bible on some difficult thing, then how can we trust them, Trust the Bible on anything? Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Faith, futile, it's like or the word vain. It's like you're trusting in nothing. It's like you might as well believe, you might as well trust in the Easter Bunny for eternal life. And in fact, here's the big one. You are still in your sins. You're not forgiven. And so that means you are still subject to God's judgment. And forgiveness is a myth because a dead corpse cannot give, forgive your sins. People all over the world are dealing with the guilt of sin. No matter what they believe or say they believe or what religion is attached to, to their culture, there is a, a, a universal sense of the guilt of sin. And we as Christians have nothing to offer them unless Jesus rose from the dead. Because Forgiveness of sins is predicated on the reality of the resurrection. Because if he's not, if he didn't rise, he's not God. And if he's not God, he can't forgive sins. 
Uh, some of you may remember the story in the Gospels of how uh, Jesus really angered the, the Pharisees at one time because he told a man, your sins are forgiven you. The, the, the occasion was, was when some men brought their friend uh, to where Jesus was teaching, but it was so crowded in the house, they actually went up on the roof, as you could in uh, uh, Palestinian houses there, and you, you, could, re, you could open up the, the top of the roof, and they let the guy down for Jesus to heal. And this remarkable conversation took place. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's when Jesus, the man we are lowered. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, what are, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. So you realize Jesus didn't heal everybody. He didn't wave his hand over Judea and say, all the paralytics be healed or anything like that. He didn't. The reason he did his miracles was to show who he was, that he was God. So he did physical miracles to show that he could do the most important invisible but real miracle of forgiving sins. The visible miracle proved the reality of forgiveness. And forgiveness before a holy God is our most important, ultimate need. We cannot be forgiven without the resurrection. We're declared righteous because Jesus arose. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Okay, That's the substitutionary death of Christ. Our sins put on him. We're, he was, that took care of the sin, but he was raised to life for our justification. Justification means we are declared righteous. That's the declaration that the sin was really paid for, and that meant that there, was, there had to be a receipt showing sin, debt, canceled. Otherwise, the sin debt was unpaid, and the resurrection validated that God had accepted, the holy God had accepted Christ's payment for our sins. And so if he didn't rise, then there's no promise of forgiveness. And every human being would forever exist in a state of perpetual guilt. Still more. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Speaking of those who are in Christ, so believers, we would be lost. So you can believe in Christ all you want to, but you're going to be, the word is perish. It's the same word actually that uh, we find in John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Perish is hell. Everlasting life is heaven. So God's wrath would remain on that person. John 3, 36. There is no eternal life. No one gets to heaven if Jesus wasn't raised. And beyond that, he says, it's kind of like this is like the and by the way, do you realize then we're just a bunch of fools for believing in, in something that could not really be because Jesus did not really arise. In this, if it's only in this life that we hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. We, we're, 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 we're pathetically fooled 
Just, just like the, the, the atheists would maybe say about us. We're just, we're just believing in our imaginary friend. Now, Paul did not write the, the book of 1 Corinthians to unbelievers. Uh, this is not an evangelistic tract, so to speak, even then. But of course, this is the resurrection of Christ is the obstacle that unbelievers face. Uh, it, is, it is that crucial piece that... Uh, where the gospel of, that we preach either rises or falls. But, but you see, the, the, the humanist, at least, the atheist humanist, uh, only believes in what can, you, can, you can see, touch, and, and feel. And so all they see is that, yes, there's this human being, it's pretty amazing, we do amazing things, but, but we die, and then they take our body, and they, they put it in a hole, and it's done. Just, just like any bug or animal dies. That, that's all they see. Some of the brilliant minds of the world say things like that. Isaac Asimov, when I die, I won't go to heaven or hell. There'll just be nothingness. Robert Nozick, a philosopher. It might be nice to believe such a theory, life after death, but isn't the truth starker? This life is the only existence there is. Afterwards, there's, there's nothing. That, that's that's, the, that's the, the mindset. If we're wrong about the resurrection, they're right. And we should be pitied. But if God's word is right, then they are to be pitied. Paul has raised the stakes as high as they can go. Our eternity is staked on the death and resurrection. So, according to some, Paul says, here's the situation. Jesus is dead. Our preaching is wasted. We're believing in myth. Uh, preachers are liars. There's no forgiveness. We die and go nowhere. And we're pathetic fools. I, I can almost envision as Paul's writing this, he just kind of pauses right there. And, 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 he, and he picks up his pen and, and smiles. And maybe I, I imagine him writing in bigger letters, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. In other words, you get it? For as in Adam all die, I'll explain, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So human being brought death, a human being, God in the flesh, brought life. And, and so since he is alive, since he is alive, we will live forever. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. According to Old Testament law, farmers were to bring the first part of their harvest uh, as a sacrifice, or as an offering, I should say, to the, to the temple, uh, trusting that indeed God would uh, allow them to go back and get the rest of the harvest that they would need for themselves. And Jesus is that guaranteed first fruits of resurrection, the first to rise from the dead with that new immortal body, and uh, it's a guarantee that there would be the rest who have what? Fallen asleep in Jesus, verse 18 and verse 20. Fallen asleep is, is not, just, not just a euphemism, a softer way to say death, but rather it's, it's a reality that for the believer, there's really just this, there's no ceasing to exist, it's simply a waking up to a new day. And so it's, it, it's really more like sleep. And he explains then the spiritual diagnosis 
that the resurrection solves by, by what he explained in verses 21 and 22. Since death came through a man, or verse 22, as in Adam all die. There is no appreciation of the resurrection and the life that we have unless we understand how hopeless our condition really was. Paul was writing to the Romans in that great treatise on salvation about how Adam's sin has affected and infected all of us. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. In fact, even grammatically, that last statement, all sinned, is connected with Adam's sin. There is a real sense in which we are guilty of Adam's sin. Uh, because he sinned, everyone is born sinners. How can that be fair that we sinned when Adam sinned? Uh, a little bit of, uh, try to think a little theologically if you can this morning. It's called imputed sin. To be imputed means that something that belongs to one is, a, is put on the account of another, like transferring funds, right? Now it's on your, my account to your account. There are three imputations in Scripture. One is that Adam's sin, we just read, Adam's sin was imputed to us. So though we had, do not yet exist at that point of Adam and Eve, all of the sin of, the sin of Adam was, was put on the account of everyone who was yet to be born. But praise the Lord, there are two more imputations. Equally unfair, you could say, because our sin was imputed to Christ. Adam's sin went on our account, and our sin went on Christ's account. And that's what was happening at the cross, is our sin was placed upon Jesus, imputed to him. And that's not the end of the story. Because then when you put your faith in Christ, what happens is that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. That's the story of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 captures those two. You've seen me put this up on the screen, I think, many times. It's a precious verse. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, our sin placed upon Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know that you are righteous in God's sight? Do you know that God sees you, if you're a believer in Christ, you put your faith in the one who died for your sins and rose again, the good news. If you have done that, then God sees you as holy as Christ. Isaiah spoke of it prophetically. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. What a beautiful metaphor. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are not supposed to, as believers, be wallowing in our guilt. But we need to realize that even as the Spirit is at work addressing and confronting our sin to conform us more to be like Christ, that it, the reason God can accept us in that process, and it's an ugly process sometimes, the reason Christ can, God can accept us in that process is because He already sees us in, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So as we read in verses 20 and 21, about our spiritual diagnosis. Indeed, death came through a man, as in Adam all die, because of that sin. But also, then the second part of that is, through, the, through a man, the res resurrection of... For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
he explains, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And when he says alive there, he doesn't just mean physically alive. It includes physical life, but you cannot separate that from being spiritually, eternally alive. We are now residents of heaven, fully qualified for heaven because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I love hearing testimonies of anyone that comes to put their faith in Christ because it's the story of, of one more person who's coming alive. It's like, like one more resurrection has become guaranteed. Uh, when we have baptisms, to hear that testimony, this is how I put my faith in Christ, and, and we all rejoice, we all applaud because of, of what God has done for this person. Again, Romans 6. Shortly after he talked about Adam's sin, he says, let me tell you about a baptism. This is not, the, this is not water... Water baptism pictures the real baptism. You get that? Uh, the, in, the invisible baptism is what the Spirit does. That's what this is talking about here. We were therefore buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So, so we have been so identified with Christ that we are identified with his death and his resurrection, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is, our sin became his, his life became ours. There is no better news than that our sin became his. We are so linked, identified, and that's what baptism is ultimately about, Baptized is to be identified with the death and resurrection of Christ. So, but this is a good verse when, we're, when, we're, when someone is being baptized by water because the external water baptism is a picture of what has happened spiritually. And so what do we do when we do immersion baptism? You died with Christ, raised with Christ, and we applaud because... God has given this new eternal life. So, in the subject of resurrection, Paul, when do we get the new body? Verse 23. But each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, Christ comes, those who belong to him belong to who? Belong to Christ. Oh. This, this gets really exciting. The Bible doesn't tell us dates, but the Bible tells us an order. And, and this very sequence, Christ raised here, we're going to be raised here. The nature, the nature of, time, of sequence and time is that it's got to be something physical. So Jesus physically, literally rose. We will physically, literally rise. It's, it's a physical, sequential, in-time reality. What will that body be like? You'll have to wait for that. I, I was tempted to go into that, but that's verses 35 to 50. More of a description. Just, just know that there's going to be a new, perfect, physical version of you. Amen. New, perfect, physical version. When does it happen? When he comes. When, he com when is he coming? We don't know when. We know he will. Again, that's going to be, a, the, that's going to be verses 50 to 52. I just can't wait several weeks. So let's read verse 20, 51 and 52. <laughs> Listen, I tell you a mystery, a new truth. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to die, but we will all be changed. Meaning we're all needing a new body. Can't go to heaven, verse 50, with this one. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What, what's, what's Paul saying there? The dead will be raised, and then Paul says, we will be changed. Why, why did Paul say we? He thought he would be in the group still alive when this happened. Because Christ is coming back, what we call the rapture, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 is the other key passage on this. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive will be caught up together with him. And, and Paul's filling in the blanks saying, that's when we get our new body. So some of us, maybe in this room, is gonna, are going to skip death. Wouldn't that be great? Just skip it entirely. But we're all going to need a new body, and we're all going to get a new body at the resurrection rapture event. We hate death. We suffer in grief. We know that someday we die unless the rapture comes, fruit, comes first. But we know that our end is a physical, touchable, eating and drinking, relating body eternally because Christ arose. If the passage ended there, we could all go away encouraged about the future because that's about us. But Paul is writing about more than just us. Uh, Paul is writing about as well. He wants, he wants the Corinthians to know that because Christ arose, Jesus has the authority to take care of not just your life, but the whole universe's issues. All the effects of sin will be completely settled because Jesus rose from the dead. And there are so many. Terrorism. Wars. Mass shootings. Suffering of every kind. Loss and mocking of biblical morality. Corruption. Persecuted Christians everywhere. Does, does the resurrection of Christ have anything to do with that? Will that ever end? Will there ever be, will there ever be peace on earth? Isaiah, uh, prophesying of Jesus coming, said he's going to be the prince of peace and uh, government will be on his shoulders. His government will never end. Has that happened? Oh, that's not now. That's not yet. But it's as certain as our resurrection Verse 23 says, okay, so this is you. Now I want to talk about the world. Each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He's going to destroy even death. But he's, he's got, got, Christ has a lot of things to do yet. Then the end will come, verse 24. It's like Paul just jumps to the end of the story like an eager child telling a story. And then, wait, wait, wait. Now, what all happens there? Well, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after what? After he has done some other things. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That hasn't happened yet. We could wish, but evidently there are a lot more ways in which God is going to be glorified in a sinful world before he gives us the unsinful, non-sinful world. So this, this era matters because God is in some special way 
glorified by us, his church, those who are alive in Christ, in the midst of a sinful world. Because I assure you, someday all enemies, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is doomed. In Romans 8, again following Paul's sequence of thought there, he, he says, there's going to be, we groan right now. We groan and waiting for the redemption of the body. We groan for the redemption of the creation. We groan because we don't, we don't understand. But we're called to patience, waiting for God's timing. He has more to do that we don't understand. You know, a young child, a very young child, has a hard time understanding the time it takes to wait till Christmas, right? So they start getting that Christmas buzz and, uh, you know, the three-year-old, is it, is it Christmas today? No, it's not, not today, not today. So we do things like make paper chains, right? Make, and so you take, take a, tear off one thing, okay, this many days. And so this, this, this three-year-old or whatever is trying to comprehend time. And, but, but all that he or she can really understand is Christmas is really great. And I got underst- to trust mom and dad about when it comes. Because I don't really get the time thing. It'll be great. They don't understand that there's still gifts to buy and, 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 and packages to wrap. They don't understand that there's, there's decorations that are going to go up and there's treats that are going to be made and there's going to be people who are going to be invited to be part of the celebration. And so they just wait and we don't understand the reality that, that God is still inviting more people to the celebration and that, 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 that Christ, you could say, is still uh, decorating his church. That's why there's this, this difficult sanctification process in which you and I are battling our sin natures and seeking to, to rely on the Spirit for more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the things it'll take so that we become more like, more like him. But, but all this is, is still going on in anticipation. We don't understand his, his timing, but, but he's going to fix it all. And, and Paul says, I just can't help but jump to the end times, even though what I'm talking to you is about what Jesus, that Jesus rose in past time. But because Jesus rose in past time, that means that in future time, he has the authority to fix everything. It'll be the end of sin. It'll be the end of sinners. It'll be the end of Satan. In fact, it'll be the end of death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's how final it is. That's how complete the victory accomplished by the resurrection is. These phrases uh, all fit actually well into our understanding of uh, what the Bible says about prophetic future. So I thought this might be a good time to just kind of plug in some of Paul's phrases into what we know about the future. So historically, Christ died and he rose again. Okay. That's what this is all founded on. And we live today in what we could call the church age. We're somewhere, right? We don't know exactly where, but we know what the next event is going to be. And the next event is when Christ comes. And so that rapture event that we find in this different passage is mentioned here as well. Jesus comes for those who belong to him. What was that, verse 23? Those who belong to him. But then the end comes. And the end is not just a moment here. This is a sequence of events in which 
God is wrapping up his plan. The Old Testament prophets often called this the day of the Lord. And the day was not a single 24-hour day. It's a, it's a whole sequence of events. We know from the book of Revelation that includes things like the tribulation time, some seven years in which after the church is gone, there is a, there is a, a refining process that takes place. But at the end of that, Christ is coming back in a very different sense, not coming now to deliver his church, but now coming to judge the earth. And all unbelievers will be destroyed, as we see the, pet, the phrase in here, to destroy all enemies and to reign. Reign where? Reign on earth. And so Revelation 20 takes us to this amazing kingdom era, the final dispensation, some thousand years in which Christ will reign on earth. And then Satan will be released. He's bound for that time, but he'll be released for a, a season. <clears throat> and those who have grown up during that time have a choice, and some will rebel against him. And then fire is going to come down from heaven, and God's going to, Christ is going to judge in a final sense, a great white throne judgment. And that's where we find that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Because verse 27 then says, For he has put everything under his feet. Grammar's who's the he, but God the Father has put everything under the feet of Jesus the Son. And there's a prayer, kind of a parenthetical the rest of verse 27 saying that doesn't mean that God is under his feet. Obviously, uh, the Father isn't under the Son. But, but Jesus is in, is in charge and he's going to rule and reign. And he becomes the final judge. Jesus said, John 5, 22, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And that comes at the, the final segment of that, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, just taking snippets from that passage. And each person was judged according to what they had done. This is a judgment not of us. This is not a judgment of believers. This is a judgment of unbelievers. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so there's a very real eternal judgment for those who have rejected the grace of Christ. How to get your name in the book of life? Believing in the good news, verses 1 to 11. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose again, period. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing but trusting in Christ. He died for your sins and rose again. And your name is in the book of life because you will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and he will see you as righteous and welcome you to a perfect eternity. And so verse 28 wraps it up and says, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So somehow there is this, like Jesus saying to the Father, the work you sent me to do in, 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 in saving and in judging is completed. Now I bring myself back into this somehow voluntary submission. While the, and we're overwhelmed trying to imagine how the triune God is going to work into all eternity, but the, but the Father is somehow... Oh, oh, the son is somehow submitting himself to, to the father and the spirit and, and the father reigns and the, Jesus at the right hand. And, and we just kind of like, we're boggled and we should be. If, if we can perfectly understand eternity, then, then we haven't understood eternity. But it's going to be all put together and God's going to solve everything that sin spoiled on earth because Jesus died and rose again. 
So chapter 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is in our eternal state saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That personal relationship that we, 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 we had, we're so imperfect at it, right? We struggle to, to maintain it. We, we struggle to imagine the reality of God. But, but that relationship is now going to be fully realized. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For this old order has passed away. And, and all of heaven will be praising him. And as we think of that, we can relax and know it's just for a while, but nothing is out of control. And even the terrible enemy of death will be vanquished because we have a Savior who died for our sins and he rose again. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you live and that we are not believing in some imaginary things that, uh, ideas that make us feel better. Lord, we know you are still inviting others into the family of, of God through faith in Christ. And uh, that, that, that we have faith in that which we do not see, but someday we will fully see, fully realize, fully experience, and be fully in your presence and enjoying you. And Lord, we all know someone who is already with you enjoying that. Uh, so here we grieve, but we, have, we grieve with, not like the rest who have no hope, but we grieve with full confidence that we too will live forever and there is more than our eyes could ever see or imagine as awaiting us in that uh, grand reunion of those who are in Christ. And we, we wait for that expectantly and Lord, give us patience. In Jesus' name, amen.